Well, we're on week two of a four-week message series on I want to believe, but we're talking about some of the challenges that people have in their faith. A lot of people want to believe in God, but very often there's something that's holding them back, some reason, some hurdle that keeps them from believing in, um, as they would, as they would like to. Many times people, what they're rejecting is not the true God, but rather it is a, a, a wrong view of God. And um, they have a distorted view of God, and that's what they're rejecting. So we're talking about some of these uh, false views of God and how they can lead us to struggle in our faith. And I want to thank Pastor Greg Rochelle for the study guide that I've been using. Last Sunday, we talked about the on-demand God, the God who does everything that we want, and that God doesn't exist. And next week, we're going to talk about the killjoy God, you know, the God that just wants to take all of the fun out of life, that is harsh and overbearing. And, but today, we're going to talk about uh, the goosebump God, and the goosebump God is you know, the idea that I want to believe in God, but I don't feel him. And how do you believe in a God that you can't see and that you can't hear with your audible voice? I want to be, believe in God, but I don't really feel him. You know, uh, there was a story of a, one teenage young lady who made almost that exact statement to her pastor. I want to believe in God, but I don't feel him. And when she said those words, her eyes were full of tears. She said, Pastor, my dad recently died of brain cancer. I, I was so close to my dad, and my mom is not really even a believer in God. And, and I'm hurting so much, and I drive myself to church all alone every single week because I need something spiritually. I need some spiritual strength, but it's just not happening for me. I, I try to read my Bible, and I don't understand it. I sing the songs that everyone else seems to feel something, and I feel numb. When I pray, it's just like I'm talking to myself. I don't feel like anything is happening. And you could sense in her voice that um, she was really going through a hard time. Driving herself to church all alone, uh, believing something, uh, wanting to believe something, but not feeling it. You know, I wonder how many here today, at some point in your life, maybe even now, or maybe someone you know, uh, you, you, you want to believe in God, but you don't feel him. There's, uh, of course, there's always those other annoying people that feel like they feel God in everything. They see, they experience God every day, all of the time, right? Uh, we've all been around people like that, you know, like, I'm talking to God and he said this to me, or I'm driving here and my favorite song is playing and it's just like the Holy Spirit fills the car and it's just this wonderful encounter with God. Or, uh, you know, I, I went to the mall and I prayed for just the right parking spot and lo and behold, there it was, or you know, my, my husband just got a big promotion at work, or my son just got accepted into some fancy school. God is so good. It's kind of annoying, isn't it, when you hear all of that? Because uh, sometimes maybe we feel like it's all the opposite for us. You know, we're, we're driving in the car, and we hate all of the songs they're playing. And we go to the mall, we can't find a parking spot anywhere, and we have to walk half a mile in the rain. Or our husband gets laid off, and our kid gets kicked out of community college. You know, it's like... Everything goes backwards for us. Do you ever feel that way? I think we all feel that way at times, right? And sometimes, um, you know, we imagine other people's lives to be so much better than ours. And, and sometimes, you know, people can kind of feed into that, I guess. If you don't always feel God's presence, let me just say you're not alone. 
the psalmist himself said in Psalm 83, he says, But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast me off then? Why do you hide your face from me? See, that's the way we can feel. We pray and we're seeking God, but it seems like, you know, he's nowhere to be found. Remember, the psalmist David, he was the one who prayed, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. And he felt that. But he's the very same person who wrote all of those other psalms where he said, you know, Lord, where are you? And Lord, I'm crying out to you and you're not answering me. And Lord, all of my enemies are pursuing me. And God, you don't seem to be. I thought you were on my side, God. And where are you, God? And we can feel that way, too. Why at times do we not feel the presence of God? If you've ever wondered where God is in your life, you're not alone. You know, I think of C.S. Lewis, and many of you uh, have read the Chronicles of Narnia, or if you've watched the movies, and of course they were all written by C.S. Lewis, a very famous, well-known Christian author. And he also wrote on the spiritual life and philosophy and things about God. And, and he tells the story in another book that he wrote about one of the most difficult, hardest times in his life. And And he said, I cried out to God, and all I got was a slam door and the sound of bolting and double bolting from the inside. After that, it was silence. And he confessed that this silence even made him wonder about his own faith. He said, there were no lights on in the windows. The house might be empty. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. Why is God so present of a commander in my time of prosperity, but he's a very absent help in my time of trouble? And then we can all feel that way. But let me just say this, and I think we sang something like this just a moment ago. Just because God is silent doesn't mean God is, is absent. And just because we don't see God working doesn't mean that God is not working. So why do we not always feel God? Why do we not always experience God? Well, I want to invite you to look at some possible answers with me. We're going to look in the Gospel according to John, chapter 4. I want to invite you to turn there with me uh, in your scriptures. And we're going to read this story. It's, It's quite a long passage that we're going to read. And I would love for you to read it with me and follow along with me. And the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And of course, John was one of Christ's earliest followers. And You know, there had to have been something very special about Christ because on a human level, John was his cousin. And for anyone to convince their cousin that they're the son of God, (laughs) you're accomplishing a lot, right? Because our cousins know us pretty well and we can't pull much over on them. So John was, uh, was very close to the Savior and wrote this gospel account of what he saw and experienced as a follower of Jesus. And we're going to read in chapter 4, and that tells about the encounter of the woman at the well, where Jesus uh, teaches us a lot about God's heart for people who are far away from God. This story teaches us about witnessing and sharing and ministering to others. But my friends, it also has something very important to tell us about experiencing God, how to experience God. And, uh, And how do we learn about experiencing God? from the pages of God's Word. 
the Bible, uh, God graciously revealed himself to us in the pages of his word, and it is there that we find the answers that we need. So we're going to read this uh, historical account together. Are you ready to read the word of God? Because we're going to read like 30 verses all, all at once, all right? So you follow along with me, and I know it'll be an encouragement to your heart. John 4, beginning in verse 1, I'll read aloud, and you follow along with me. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So that would have been 12 noon. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Although geographically they lived very close, uh, politically and religiously and socially they were very far apart. There was a lot of animosity and uh, just very uh, political differences, religious differences. And besides that, Jesus being a rabbi, being a, a man, during this time period, they really wouldn't even speak to women in public. But that's the good thing that we know about our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he didn't care about social constructs and, and, and uh, the culture of his day. He tore down a lot of these um, unhealthy and wrong social societal barriers. And he was very good at tipping over sacred cows. And he does that right here as he engages this woman in a conversation about God. Verse 10, it says, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? as well as his sons and his livestock? Boy, what a loaded question. She reached for the, the most prominent person in, in their worldview was, was Jacob. And, and she doesn't even realize who she's speaking to. And Jesus answered in uh, verse 13 and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give them will become in them a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So it's spiritual water that satisfies the hungers and the thirst of each one of our souls. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're young or you're a teenager or a child. It doesn't matter where you're from or how you've worshipped in the past. There is something that comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ that satisfies the deepest longings of your heart or my heart. And so um, verse 13 says, I'm sorry, uh, the verse 15 says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me that water 
that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go. Now Jesus is going to touch on the area of her pain. And this was her spiritual hurdle about faith. This is where she was stuck in experiencing God. And Jesus puts his finger right on her, her deepest pain and her greatest need. In verse 17, uh, Jesus said uh, in verse 16, go and call your husband and come here. And, Jesus, and the, an, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus knew that already. That's why he brought it up. Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you are now with is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. This was their religious uh, disagreement that the Samaritans believed that Abraham and the first five books of the uh, Bible, they believed in all of that, but they believed that Mount Gerizim was the place where they should worship, not in Jerusalem. And so they had a temple, much like the temple in Jerusalem, they had a, a, a similar temple built on the top of Mount Gerizim. And they believed that was the geographical place, not Jerusalem, where they should worship. And, and so Jesus is about to reveal some of this to her. He says here in, um, what verse are we in? Uh, verse, uh, uh, verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, these are the verses we're going to focus on today. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, why, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot and went on her way into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and they came to him. What a beautiful story, and it's a wonderful thing to read God's Word. Why do we not always feel God? Well, one possible answer is that maybe we are over-sensationalizing our God experience. Maybe uh, we've misunderstood what it means to know and experience God. People can often confuse spirituality with some big emotional experience that has to happen or needs to happen all of the time. Being close to God is not necessarily always an emotional feeling. Our, our text says this is very helpful on this point in verse 24, where it tells us something very important about the nature and essence of God. When it says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it says that God is spirit. 
because God is spirit, uh, the Father is spirit, that means that he is omnipresent. He is not limited to one particular mountain or one particular temple. He, in order to worship or experience him. Uh, the psalmist says these words, and it helps us understand what does it mean that God is spirit? What are the implications of that? Well, the first one is, is that he is omnipresent. The psalmist said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the lowest parts of the earth, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Because God is spirit, that means he is everywhere, everywhere that physically you could ever be, God is already there. He permeates everywhere. Uh, to understand this idea of spirit, is, is based, he does not have a body. He does not have arms and legs. Sometimes the Bible refers to God in that way. It says, you know, the, the Lord's ear is open to our cry, or the Lord's hand did thus and such. But those are, uh, here's your big word for the day, okay? This is so you guys can be impressed that I went to seminary, right? It's not really, just paid attention in English class, really. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphisms are giving uh, human-like characteristics to someone or something that doesn't innately have them. So it talks about the ear of God and the hand of God, but God is a spirit. He does, he's not limited to a body. And it's, someone said that uh, understanding the presence of God as a spirit is, can be likened to the atmosphere. You know, oxygen is a gas that fills everywhere. It's not limited by of one particular place. If we think about just the atmosphere of this room, you didn't come in here wondering if there would be oxygen here, right? You just were confident and you just didn't even think about it. You just naturally assume. And, and now I've been in this building a lot, as you might imagine, over the years. One time I was actually right up there, right next to the ceiling, hanging off some scaffolding. And I was, my prayer life got really intense in that moment, too. You know? uh, it was like, we have a ladder here that we just need to get rid of because it's like, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a widow maker, they might say, right? And I was up there. You know what? There was oxygen up there. It's not all right here. It's up there, too. And I've seen some of your kids climb under these pews before. And you know what? There's oxygen down there, too. You can't go anywhere in this building and the oxygen is everywhere. As a matter of fact, there's pretty much, you know, like the, like the psalmist said, God's spirit is like oxygen. You go to the highest mountain, and, you know, if you go to the top of Mount Everest, you might have to carry a little bit of extra oxygen, they say. I mean, I've never experienced that, but it's thin up there, but it's there, right? And, and if you go down to the, the, the deepest hole, it permeates. And the very same thing is true about the Spirit of God, that God is Spirit. He is everywhere, so that when you're on a gurney and you're wheeled into a hospital room, God is there. When you go to the funeral home and your heart is breaking, God's presence is there. When you're riding in the back of an ambulance and you don't know what's about to happen in your life, 
God is there. He is spirit. He is omnipresent. He's with us everywhere and at every moment of our life. And that is a wonderful thing. Something else about the fact that God is spirit, it also means that um, he cannot necessarily be perceived by our physical senses. Uh, Oxygen, you know, let's just use oxygen. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. Now, physically, it's there. I mean, we have ways of measuring it, right? Um, but, but God's presence is spirit. And by nature, spirit cannot be perceived by the five senses. It is outside the physical realm. And so, uh, you know, one time I was in, uh, when I was in Guatemala, and, and this is where people can struggle if they don't understand that God is not always a goosebumps God. And they, they struggle with this idea of feeling and sensing and, and physically experiencing God's presence. It's not something that happens all of the time. And I was in uh, Guatemala one time, and there was a, a, a fellow that I came to know, and he was a friend of a friend and, and a nice guy, very nice guy. I appreciated him so much. And, but he wanted to pray for me. And he wanted to pray for me to experience the Spirit of God in a way that I had not before, according to him. And so we met, and we prayed, and he was praying, and he prayed really hard, and he put on some soft music, and he was praying over me, and he was praying over me, and, and it was a wonderful time of prayer. But then he started talking about how when the Spirit is really present, you can smell the Spirit of God. And it is like this sweet, savory aroma that you can smell. And then he said that you could actually see that, that you're, when you're in the presence of the Spirit of God, it glistens on your hand. And you see that the, the, the confusion there is that God is spirit that you cannot necessarily perceive with your five senses. And, and sometimes there are, this is where the word of God becomes very helpful to us, that it tells us that we worship God in spirit and in truth. Because sometimes in an effort to experience God, we over-sensationalize it, and, and people are looking for these different ways that really aren't in the Bible, they're not in the truth of God's Word, but yet they're, they're trying to find some way to experience God. And when we don't have that, it can be very disappointing, we can struggle in our faith, and um, now, now, don't get me wrong, we do experience God's presence. Uh, the Bible says that we worship him in spirit and in truth. And Romans 8 says that the spirit of God bears witness with our spirit. So God can speak to our heart and we can be impressed by the spirit and we can be convicted by the Holy Spirit. I hope that we're convicted by the spirit of God. So we experience God, but it's not always going to be in this uh, over emotionalized way. So how do you know that that's the spirit of God speaking to you? How do you know that, that what you're feeling is something from God? Because that's very subjective. You know, you can feel a lot of things. I mean, if, if a nice-looking person that smells, you know, really nice sits down next to you, you might start to feel something. Or, you know, if you watch a really sad movie or you watch this really touching video on YouTube, that can bring tears to your eyes. I mean, there's been times that I've been in, you know, a stadium I won't tell you which stadium it is, but it's white, it's black and white. 
mostly, black and white. That's the stadium that I've been in a lot. And they sing the Star Spangled Banner. And maybe there's soldiers holding a set of flags, and, and they have someone who can really sing good. And you feel something, right? You feel an emotion. You just, you get goosebumps. But that's not necessarily the spirit of God. That's, that's patriotism. That's a little bit different, right? So we can feel things, but that, that's rather subjective. And, and, and we should feel something about God. I mean, good night. He's, the, he's greater than any ball club or any nation. He's the God of the universe. And, and the truths about him are the most important truths of all. And the work that he does is the greatest work of all. So it should be very natural that we feel something and we are moved by our faith in God. But that's not something that we always experience or always have to experience. Uh, that's why the Bible says, uh, you know, here it says we worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is where the truth kicks in, because uh, we evaluate everything by the truth of God's word. And that's the, it's written down. It's uh, something that you can go back and look at. It doesn't change. You can go back and study it and, and understand it better. And it's always going to say and be the very same thing every single time. And so we, we worship him in spirit and in truth. Luke 10, uh, 30, uh, I believe it's 37, says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. So with all of our being, we worship God. And we do worship him with our emotions, but we also worship him with our mind. So we understand his truth. And so this is the balance that I'm talking about. And uh, someone explained it this way. And this is kind of a simple illustration, but I think it can be helpful. Just imagine a train. So we have a train up here on the platform, okay? And right here is this big old engine. And behind it is a second car, and this is like a coal bin car, and it's full of coal. And then behind that is um, a caboose. So we have three cars on our train. We have an engine, we have a coal car, and we have a caboose. And, of course, if it's got a coal car, this is a steam locomotive engine, okay? Now, how many of you ever ridden on a real live steam engine train? Right? You ever done that? There's only about three or four of them in the nation that are still kind of running. And one of them is in Durango, Colorado. And you can ride it all the way up the mountain to Silverton, Colorado. And we did that one time, and it was a really cool experience, you know? I mean, it wasn't that cool. It was kind of hot, actually, because it was the summertime. And when we got up there, we were all covered in soot because that's what the engine's pumping out, and you're behind all of the... But anyway, it was this engine, right? So if we look at this train that I'm talking about, we're going we're gonna to say that the engine are facts. They are the truth of God's word. That's really what go. It's the facts of the truth of God's word. That's the power. But behind it... Is the, is the coal car of faith. And that's what we put into the engine. That's what we put. We, the facts are there, but until we believe in them, until we put our faith and trust in them, we're not going to move very far. And so we put our faith in the facts or the truth of God's word, and that makes us move forward spiritually. That's what moves us along in our spiritual walk, our faith in the truth of God's facts. But wait a minute, behind it is the caboose of feelings. And we kind of bring that along with us. And, and we can have feelings, and, and that's good. And, and 
that we should feel something, as I said earlier, but that is not what's driving the train, right? And as a matter of fact, you could, I guess in some way, you could, you know, like pull out that linchpin and you could somehow disconnect the caboose and a train will still move forward without a caboose, right? It's just your faith is is, is trusting in and feeding into the truth of God's word. And that is what enables us to move forward, even sometimes without all of the feelings. Now, they're good, but they don't drive the train. And I think sometimes in our Christian walk, if we get the feelings in the wrong place, we sang about it today. Even when I don't see him, he's working. Even when I don't feel him, he's working. That's why it's called faith. We believe in what we believe by faith, even when we can't see it or we can't feel it. So maybe we're over-sensationalizing it. We don't always feel God's presence. That's why it's called faith. And just because God is silent does not mean he's not working. But there's another reason, perhaps, that we don't experience God. We don't always feel God. And we see this in our story as well. Maybe it's because our heart has become hardened. You know, th- this, is ver- this can happen to anyone. This can happen to a Christian even. In Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus Christ spoke and he was quoting the prophet Isaiah. So it happened in the Old Testament to the uh, children of Israel. It happened in the New Testament to the people Jesus was speaking to when he said these words, Hearing you will hear, but not understand. And seeing you will see, but not perceive. For the hearts of this people have become calloused, and their ears hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. So our hearts can become calloused and hardened. And, and we see this in our story here. In, uh, in verses, um, beginning in verse 15, when he begins to talk about what was heavy on her heart, what had so burdened and overwhelmed her life was this experience with five different husbands. You know, our hearts can be hardened uh, by sin. Our hearts can also be hardened by the hurts and the disappointments of life. And, you know, as I read this, understand this story, I think that's more the case with her. I mean, obviously, we're all sinners, and she had her own set of sins, but the fact that she's had five husbands, I mean, in first century Israel and in ancient Israel, a woman couldn't even divorce her husband. That wasn't even a right that they had. Only a husband could divorce the wife. So this is something that had been happened to her five different times. Five different. Imagine this with me I- as much as we can understand. Five different times she had fallen in love. And she had set her heart on a person. And and she had committed her, she had given herself to that person with the idea that we're going to make a life together. And five different times that person had betrayed her and that person had rejected her. That had been her life for all of her adult life. She had been hurt deeply. And, and, you know, did she have a part in that? We don't know the story. We don't know all of her story. But obviously she was now living with a man. So sometimes the hardness of our life and the disappointments of our life can lead us onto a path of sin. And, and, you know, 
they can't, they can't intermingle. That's just human. But both of these were separating her from God, were keeping her from experiencing God. She felt, she felt shame. She felt guilt. She felt all kinds of things that, that um, made her feel like, I can't be close to God. I can't experience God. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ knew this. This is the beauty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because in his grace and in his love, he comes to us where we are. And there's people in this room right now, and your heart is hurting. And you carry, uh, you carry emotional pain and hurt from life. Your father left your family. Your husband was abusive. Um, it, could, it could go on and on and on. I, mean, I, I hesitate to say more because I don't want to exclude anyone because we all have had, and some of you have had extremely difficult things happen in your life. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes to us and he says, don't let that hold you back from believing in God or trusting in God. And sometimes, you know, this is the, this is the reality of, you know, we've grown up in church and we, we, we've got the church thing and we go through the motions of the Christian life. And, and, and it's not that we're bad people, but there is, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of hurt here that we have so covered over, we have so pushed down, we have so uh, uh, buried that we cannot really experience God as we should and as he would want because our hearts have become callous, they become overburdened, they become, I don't. And, and what did he say? What is the answer here? Jesus said, let's put it out on the table right here and right now. I mean, it was just them two, so it was a private conversation, but Jesus wasn't going to allow the elephant in the room to stay there. He said, let's talk about this. And, and really, what is the solution to a calloused heart or to um, the hardness of, of life or the hardness of sin? What is the solution? Do you know what it is? It's talking and it's confession. Isn't that what the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, if we agree with God that what happened was wrong, if we uh, acknowledge and admit that sin has happened or as... In the case of sin, if we confess our sins, he is just and uh, fair to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's not just our sins. The hurt, the emotional pain, the, the, the path to heal. Someone said that you're only as sick as your secret. And the path to uh, healing and, and getting rid of the calluses and the hardness of our heart. I mean, if you just continue down, you can become a very hard person. And it's, and it's really, a lot of times, it's nothing that you did. It was something that was done to you. Well, what are you going to do with that now? Someone said, you cannot control what happens to you. But my friend, you can control what happens in you. What are you going to do with it? Well, the first step is to confess it, to talk it, to say it. You know, now she, she, she had the benefit, okay, she had, she had one up on us. She had the benefit of the best counselor in the universe to help her sort through what had happened in her life. But, but the Lord Jesus Christ is faithful to use other faithful people in our lives in, in private conversation just to be able to express and to confess what has happened in your life. Because this can really separate us from God. Someone said it like this. Um, imagine, we're all Midwesterners here, right? We've been, we've, 
We've been through a few winters in, in, the, in Chicago land, right? So you're, let's say you're going to go outside, and it's zero degrees outside. I mean, it's flat out zero, maybe even below. With the wind chill, you know, it's like 15 below. What are you going to do? Well, you, you put on, uh, you're going to put on the best base layer known to man. You know, it costs 80 bucks at Cabela's. This is the best heavyweight base layer, right? And then you're going to put on some Patagonia snow pants and some kind of big parka. And you're going to get all uh, heavy clothes. You're going to get on like snow gloves that have 400 grams of Thinsulate. And I don't even know if they have that. <laughs> you're going to put on boots that have heaters inside of them. You're going to put on the best hat. And all of it, you're going to get all bundled up. And with all of that on, you're going to walk out into zero degree temperatures. What are you going to feel in that moment? You're not going to feel what's out there. You're not going to feel zero degrees because there is this huge uh, barrier. There is this huge thing that's, that's separating you from what is out the temperature out there, right? And in the very same way, God is spirit. He is there. He is present. But sometimes we can't feel God in his presence because we are covered with this heavy, heavy layer of sin and pain. And it's separating us from experiencing God as he would want. Now, now quickly and lastly, there's a third reason that perhaps we're not feeling God. We don't always feel him. And maybe it's because God wants to draw us closer. Uh, you know, one of the very first verses that I ever memorized as a young man was Jeremiah 29, 13, where, where it says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That's, that's like you, God's throwing down a gauntlet, right? He said, you're not going to find me if you're looking half-heartedly. You're not going to find me if, you know, you go to church when you got nothing better to do or you, you read your Bible when you, you know, maybe sometimes you do. A lot of times you don't. And it's just kind of like this laissez-faire kind of relationship with God. You pray. Maybe you don't pray. You don't pray more than you pray. And it's just kind of. That's not me. God says, and I don't really I don't do that. He said, you're going to seek me and you're going to find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Sometimes it can be that way. God is like, okay, well, how much are you going to pursue me? How much do you really believe in me? And, you know, this we, I think we see this in our passage here in um, verses 12 and 15. Well, well really, uh, let's just look at, um, uh, he's talking about water and thirst, right? But it's a spiritual hunger and thirst that he's He's laying out before her, and he says it in verse 14. He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give them will never thirst. But the water that I will give them will become in them a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Wow, that sounds pretty amazing. And that's what she said. She said, sir, give me that water. That's what my heart and soul longs for. Just because God is silent does not mean that God is absent. And just because we don't feel him does not mean he's not there. Just because uh, you don't um, feel him doesn't mean he's not working. And sometimes 
we can't believe everything that we feel. Feelings are not facts. It takes faith in the word of God. And when we exercise that faith, very often we feel, and that comes behind, that comes later. You know, I want to close by reading Psalm 63 because uh, Psalm 63 is a very special psalm to me, and it talks about this very same idea that, that we long for God's presence. We desire to experience Him, and that draws us to seek Him. It draws us to seek Him. And so you read the Bible because it's in the pages of the Word of God that we experience God principally. And, and we pray, and we can talk to God, and God does talk to us through His Spirit. And, and so as you, uh, take to, as you feel yourself thirsty, and you feel uh, the desire to know God and to be with God and to experience God, read God's Word. Read it. Read it on a regular basis and pray to God and, and seek Him with all of your heart. Be thirsty in your heart and in your soul for something more than just this life on this earth. Psalm 63 says it this way. Oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary. In God's house of worship, we come looking, uh, longing to experience God, to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life. Is the goodness of God the most important thing in your life? Is it better than life itself? My lips shall praise you, he says. He says, I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands to your name. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness. And in that time period, the, the fat is the most desirable cut of the meat. I mean, it's like he's saying, like, God, experiencing you is like sitting down to this nice, juicy ribeye steak with a fat cap and it's all been rendered and it's crispy and it's just like it's like succulent said that's what it's like to experience you god i want to experience you i long for that i'm thirsty for that and he says uh, my soul will be satisfied when i experience that and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips he says when i remember you on my bed and I meditate on you in the night watches. So this is a person that at home, in private, they're thinking about God. They're rejoicing in God. They're reading about God in his word. Because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. And your right hand upholds me. So sometimes God's... We don't feel God as we would like because God's just drawing us closer. He's just inviting us to seek him more. Let's bow together for prayer this morning. Just with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we're going to sing together in just a moment. But before we do, I would love to pray for you. And I, 